1970s, over 20 years had passed since Hooker sank its final 55-gallon drum into Love Canal's muddy depths. But nothing stays buried forever, and slowly the canal's long-since-buried chemicals had escaped their impermeable clay encasement. We're going to end this chapter. Hey everybody, to start this episode, I wanted to try something a little bit differently. I decided to take a trip to Niagara Falls and actually visit the site of Love Canal, the subject which we've been speaking about for the past three episodes. I've been here before, lots of times actually, but it was years ago when I was a kid. I can remember driving through here with my mom, my dad, and my brother. My dad had worked for National Fuel and had spent some time disconnecting the gas services to each of the homes prior to them being demolished. They wanted to tell us a little bit about the story and then show us all the boarded up homes. I remember the front lawns and the shrubs all being overgrown and slowly the homes kind of being reclaimed by nature. It was a ghost town. Right now I'm walking along 101st Street. It's barely even a road now. It's paved with wavy, unlevel asphalt and riddled with potholes. Along the sides of the road, though, you can see curbs, you can see sidewalk, you can see drainage ditches, which will come up later. All reminders that this was once a thriving working-class neighborhood. 101st Street is also where Lois Gibbs' house was. As we'll hear in this episode, Lois was the president of the Love Canal Homeowners Association and was one of the proactive residents who fought tirelessly for the hundreds of families trapped here. Now it's just trees and overgrown reed grass. The homes are all gone now, save for an outlier here and there. Actually, just a few days ago, I spoke to somebody who grew up in the area and he was telling me stories about how he and his friends would come here and try and sneak up to the houses that were still here, but the homeowners would inevitably chase them off. Otherwise, the homes were all demolished, hundreds of them. Their debris wasn't even removed from the site. It was too dangerous, too toxic. It was bulldozed into the holes that used to be basements, just buried and forgotten. By the late 1970s, Love Canal had been a vibrant neighborhood for decades. In fact, more than a thousand families called it home. A network of tree-lined streets radiated outward, each peppered with dozens of working-class homes, and at its center, a school, the 99th Street Elementary School, surrounded by a vast grassy meadow atop a man-made layer of cracked clay resting upon a 22,000-ton bed 
of chemical waste. It was a recipe for disaster. Life in Love Canal wasn't the American dream for which so many had hoped. There was a troublingly large accumulation of complaints from residents that had piled up over the years. Complaints about odors in the air and in the tap water, or about the mysterious chemicals leaking into their basements or pooling in their backyards. And last, but certainly not least, were the health complaints, the rashes, the burns, the respiratory problems, the unexplainable illnesses, and the miscarriages. These issues had been present to some degree since the 1950s when people began to settle there in mass. Hooker Chemical, which had used the area as a repository for its chemical byproducts, stopped dumping there in the early 1950s. They capped the site with a layer of thick clay and cautioned its soon-to-be owners not to disturb it, warning them about the nature of what lies beneath. It wasn't until the mid-1970s, however, when the ever-present troubles intensified to something gravely worse. The undercurrent of complaints pouring in from homeowners had become a torrent. Some of the more proactive residents attended meetings to voice their grievances. The consistency with which they poured in raised red flags for a local paper, the Niagara Gazette, which began reporting on their concerns. It was 1976 when the Gazette first began its investigation. Reporters interviewed residents who told them about the thick, black, acrid-smelling sludge that was seeping into their yards, their homes, and even clogging their sump pumps. One homeowner even told about how, a couple years earlier, she had glanced out onto her yard through her kitchen window and saw her in-ground swimming pool, two feet above the ground, floating atop some mysterious substance. These all-too-common occurrences brought state officials to conduct limited testing on the old canal site. The results were cause for concern. They revealed the presence of at least 12 chemical compounds, including Myrex, an insecticide which, a year earlier, had found its way into Lake Ontario, causing the government to institute a fishing ban. Still, little thought was given to any corrective measures until 1977. Now, to Western New Yorkers, that year in 1977 has an infamous connotation, the blizzard of 77. Between January 28th and February 1st, wind gusts of over 60 miles per hour swept a bed of snow from atop frozen Lake Erie. This, combined with newly fallen flakes, buried residents of Western New York and Southern Ontario in devastatingly deep snowdrifts. Mountains, in some cases, reaching up to 40 feet. The snow piles melted slowly, lasting until May. Total damage from the storm reached an estimated $300 million throughout the region. But, as we'll see, the damage that the blizzard caused in Love Canal would be incalculable. Just as it had elsewhere, the snow atop the canal melted lazily over time. Gravity ushered the water downward, through fractures in the clay cap, both old and new. Eventually, it nestled at the bottom, the very surface which William Love's own steam shovels had once carved. There, it pushed the buoyant chemical barrels upward to the surface while 
At the same time, distributing immense pressure outward upon the canal's clay-lined walls. In time, the chemicals that Hooker had buried decades earlier would migrate laterally, leaching through the soil and underneath the surrounding streets upon which unsuspecting families went about their daily routines. In 1977, a young microbiologist for the city of Niagara Falls named Joseph McDougall had become aware of the issues at Love Canal. He understood the seriousness of the problem and sought serious action. He contacted the office of Congressman John LaFalse, representative for New York's 36th district. McDougall's message to LaFalse was clear. Hooker chemicals had breached containment and were a very real threat to people's lives. Shaken by what he'd been told, LaFalse brought in officials from the city, the state, and the Environmental Protection Agency, each of whom soon witnessed the environmental disaster unfolding before their very eyes. When an EPA official did preliminary testing on the site in the fall of 1977, their test results showed a large number of chemical compounds present in the groundwater. They also found evidence of chlorotoluene and trichlorobenzene, a known carcinogen, in people's living rooms. The official estimated that a proper, long-term solution to the problem might cost as much as a million dollars. Now, if they only knew the cost of what was to come, not only in terms of remediation, mind you, but rather in human suffering. The testing of area homes continued through the spring of 1978. Of 188 homes surveyed, 22 of them showed a black odorous sludge seeping into their sump pumps. The state health department tested the neighborhood's soil and water and initially identified the presence of at least 82 chemical compounds, a number that would only multiply. Surveys among residents showed an unusually high number of miscarriages and other reproductive problems. Near the southern end of the canal, toward the Niagara River, where the chemical migration appeared to be the worst, nearly 35% of women reported miscarriages. Birth defects also appeared at an alarmingly high rate, one and a half times higher than that of other areas. On August 2, 1978, New York State Health Commissioner Dr. Robert Whalen declared a health emergency. The presence of cancer-causing chemicals in the 16-acre tract adjoining the Old Love Canal, he said, constituted a great and imminent peril to its 230 adults and 134 children in 90 families. He also ordered the closing of the 99th Street School and the evacuation of pregnant women and children under the age of two from the surrounding neighborhood. Whalen's announcement confirmed what many in the area had already known. Their neighborhood was making them sick. Just five days later, on August 7th, President Jimmy Carter declared the site a federal emergency and approved funding to purchase the homes immediately surrounding the canal. It was the first time that federal emergency funding had been used for anything other than a natural disaster. Carter's action was a step in the right direction, to be sure. Under his orders, the federal government began purchasing the homes of 237 families. 
There was just one problem. The toxins which had bled through the soil at Love Canal had penetrated much further than the streets immediately next to it. No one knew for sure how far they had traveled, but one thing was for certain. Hundreds more homeowners were still at risk. Not to mention the residents of a low-income apartment complex located near the southern end of the canal, known as Griffin Manor. How were they going to get out? Home values in Love Canal had plummeted given the circumstances, and even if there was somebody out there who wanted to buy a home, they'd be a fool to pay full value. And who among these working-class families could afford to pay a down payment and a mortgage on a new home while still paying for their old one? Someone needed a light of fire under elected officials. Enter the Love Canal Homeowners Association. The association had formed just a couple of weeks earlier in July of 1978, and truth be told, it really wasn't much of an association at first, but rather the efforts of one woman, Lois Gibbs. Her goal, at least initially, was to arrange for her son, Michael, to be transferred from the 99th Street School. A normally healthy child, five-year-old Michael had developed neurological problems, He was having trouble deciphering colors and focusing on his schoolwork. Then, while enjoying a family meal at a restaurant, he suffered a seizure, the first of many. After learning of Love Canal's past through articles in the Niagara Gazette, Lois requested that her son be transferred from the school, but her request was denied. Undeterred, she stepped up her efforts, going door-to-door asking homeowners if they were experiencing any health issues. The whole neighborhood was full of disease, she told the Buffalo News, but no one was talking. Well, it started back in 1976-77 when residents who lived right here in the homes on the canal complained to local officials of contamination, odor problems. The voice you're hearing is Lois Gibbs. What was the final straw that got you some action here? I think it was our persistence. You know, we have many people, there's 550 families, who kept saying we are not going to stay here, we're not going to tolerate these health risks, uh, involuntary risks that, you know, we don't want anything to do with. She sounds confident, determined, and justifiably angry, but Gibbs was not always so assertive. Raised on Grand Island just across the Niagara River from Love Canal, Gibbs was shy and introverted. A Buffalo News reporter described her as, quote, an excellent seamstress, a good cook, and I always put the potatoes on for dinner at five o'clock person. Uh, you do your thing and I'll do mine kind. A non-joiner, a stayer in the background, a non-public speaker. A woman who took care of her house, catered to her husband and her kids, period. The leadership she would display in fighting on behalf of Love Canal residents didn't come naturally to her. It was on-the-job training. Gibbs lived at 535 101st Street, three blocks east of the canal. And, as such, her home didn't qualify for repurchase under Carter's August 7th emergency declaration. To save her family and hundreds more, she would have to become an overnight environmental expert as well as a politician. In a crowded August meeting, the Love Canal Homeowners Association was officially established, with Gibbs elected president. She wasn't supported by everyone, mind you. 
Many in the area felt that she had no right to speak on their behalf. Many others disagreed with what she was saying or that she was saying anything at all. Gibbs, however, became the voice of the movement and the one with whom those in power chose to speak. In September of 1978, many of the families entitled to leave under Carter's emergency order had done just that. The neighborhood was emptying, taking advantage of the federal funding which not only assured the sale of their house, but also provided homeowners with a stipend of $300 a month while they resettled. Some bought new homes elsewhere in the city. Some moved in with family. Others were forced to live in hotels. Entire families crammed into small rooms as they rushed to figure out the rest of their lives. Making matters worse for those left behind was the eight-foot-tall chain-link fence that the state had installed around the newly abandoned homes. This area, which included the canal and homes immediately bordering it, became known as Zone 1. And the fence, meant to protect people and property, became a visual slap in the face to those trying desperately to escape. Inside the fence, remediation efforts began. Men wearing gas masks and other protective gear excavated and hauled away thousands of pounds of toxic materials each day. In case anything went wrong, school buses idled nearby, ready to evacuate residents at a moment's notice. During the remediation work being done on the canal, there were a number of incidents and accidents, scares and mishaps. The smell throughout the community grew worse. Additionally, researchers had confirmed the presence of dioxin, a known carcinogen to humans, in alarmingly high levels in the area. Scientists identified a total of 200 chemical compounds buried at the canal. Another study showed chromosomal abnormalities in 11 of 36 people who had given blood samples. These developments understandably caused feelings of fear, helplessness, and frustration to grow among residents. In December of 1978, a large protest among angry residents led to the arrest of seven people. In order to get the help they so desperately needed, someone had to prove that the canal was harming those not just immediately adjacent to the canal, but those throughout the entire neighborhood. Homeowner Association President Lois Gibbs developed a theory. Gibbs, working with Roswell Park scientist Beverly Pagan, developed what they called the swale theory. Using old aerial photographs of the area from the 1930s, Gibbs and Pagan identified the location of streams known as swales that used to run through the area. Though most had been filled in over the years as the neighborhood developed, they still might be a conduit for chemicals to leach from the canal. Working from her kitchen table, Gibbs created an overlay of the old swales and the homes of sick families. And voila, a correlation. Gibbs and Pagan believed that the stream beds had carried toxins as many as five blocks away from the canal. They would even testify to it before Congress in a hearing led by Al Gore, then a young congressman from Tennessee. The swale theory was initially discounted by health officials. Junk science, they called it, 
useless housewife data. As more and more data was collected by scientists, however, the state health department began to change their tune. They acknowledged that there was indeed a correlation and estimated that approximately 40% of homes still inhabited were affected by it. Still, the government moved slowly and apathetically, seemingly unwilling to purchase the remaining affected homes. This would remain the case through 1979 and into 1980. Love Canal residents, trapped within their contaminated homes, fought for an escape. They fought through the media, they protested, they even filed lawsuits against Hooker Chemical, which was now owned by Occidental Petroleum. The story became an ever-growing focus of the media. Actress and social activist Jane Fonda even came to tour the area with her husband, politician, author, and activist Tom Hayden. They spoke to about a thousand people at Love Canal and later, at Niagara County Community College, addressed about 2,500 more. I've never spoken to so many people at one time about a disaster, the actress said. And it's just a bitter irony that the same chemicals that we used in Vietnam are buried here and destroying you. It looks like you have become the enemy. At the federal level, some progress was being made, albeit glacially. Funding was approved for the temporary relocation of families made sick by the ongoing remediation work. A House subcommittee recommended funding to relocate another 140 families based on Dr. Beverly Pagan's research showing chemical migration. And biggest of all, President Jimmy Carter revealed plans for a $1.63 billion superfund for hazardous waste cleanups across the country. Still, this did very little for the hundreds of families stranded at Love Canal. Seemingly every day, their situation was worsening. In June of 1979, the EPA reported that dioxin levels at the canal were 100 times higher than previously reported. They also identified the presence of numerous other hazardous dump sites throughout the city. Families were becoming increasingly frustrated and desperate things were coming to a head. By 1980, Love Canal residents had reached their boiling point. Something had to give. Love Canal Homeowners Association President Lois Gibbs had sensed the rising tension and conveyed her concerns to seemingly apathetic government officials. For all her efforts to take the high road and work cordially with the government agencies, she had gotten nothing and desperate times called for desperate measures. On May 19, 1980, Gibbs called a local motel where two EPA officials had been staying and invited them over to the Homeowners Association office where a crowd of over 250 angry residents had gathered. She asked them to come pay a visit to the neighborhood. Little did they know what their afternoon was about to become. When they arrived, Gibbs, along with two other association members, Barbara Quimby and Debbie Cirillo, were their normal, welcoming selves. They offered them a seat, passed a plate of cookies, and then barricaded the door with a 2x4 from the outside. 
The agents were going nowhere, she told them. Not until President Carter declared a national emergency and removed the remaining 710 families from the contaminated area. Gibbs, Quimby, and Cirillo also had little idea how their day would unravel. Part one was complete, but what was step two? Gibbs phoned the White House and the EPA to inform them of what was going down. She also set a deadline for their response, a response which would keep them waiting well into the evening. While the women were knee-deep in a felony, Congressman John LaFalse was in Washington and about to have dinner with President Carter, but according to author Keith O'Brien, he cautioned the women that such a hostile act was not the proper way to achieve their goals. If anything, the desperate act may have caused more harm than good. The crowd surrounding the association's office grew increasingly loud and menacing. Inside the house, the men were probably free to leave. They weren't being restrained with much force, after all, but that being said, who would dare try to walk through that threshold? Minutes turned into hours, and still no word from the White House. Then, in the evening hours, Gibbs relented. She released her hostages before the crowd, explaining to the masses, quote, We've made our point. The White House knows we're serious. Then added that if nothing changes, the events of the day would look like Sesame Street compared to what was coming. But something had worked. Perhaps it was Gibbs's stunt, perhaps it was the stress of Carter's upcoming presidential primaries, but something had definitely worked. On May 21st, 1980, President Carter declared Love Canal a national emergency, paving the way for the relocation of another 710 families. The cover of the Buffalo Evening News that day showed Gibbs in front of her house with her phone in hand. Its spiral cord is stretched through the kitchen window so that the media could film her making the announcement to her fellow residents in real time, just as she was receiving the news from the White House. It was good news, she exclaimed, though the move was on its face only temporary. It would take time, months in fact, before the slow-moving gears of government began to turn, but families would now have a chance to begin again to become normal again, to restart their lives, just somewhere else this time. In time, FEMA evacuated most of the remaining families from the 10-square block area surrounding the Love Canal landfill. Some families, however, elected to stay for various reasons. The work done by scientists, government officials, and of course, the Love Canal Homeowners Association, led to the creation of federal legislation to manage the disposal of hazardous waste throughout the country. This legislation was titled the Comprehensive Environmental Response, Compensation, and Liability Act of 1980. It's more commonly referred to as the Superfund Act, a $1.6 billion fund originally financed by the polluters themselves, Today, there are over 40,000 Superfund sites across the nation, 
1,300 of these sites are on what's called the National Priorities List, which was first created in September of 1983, with Love Canal at the top of the list. In 1988, the EPA issued the results of a five-year study on the inhabitability of the site. It found that some areas were not suitable for living without cleanup, but could be used for commercial or industrial purposes. Other areas were judged livable and could be used for residential purposes. According to the EPA, quote, because the contamination at the Love Canal site was significant, the cleanup actions and livability decisions were addressed in several stages. The first stage focused on landfill containment and collecting contaminated water, then treatment and disposal. The second stage focused on contaminated material that was excavated, as well as the treated sewer and creek sediment and other wastes. The third stage was focused on the 93rd Street School contaminated soil that was cleaned up. And the final stage managed the purchase, maintenance, and restoration of residential and commercial properties. Cleanup work was completed in 1999, and as a result, the area was found to no longer pose a threat to people's health. In September of 2004, the EPA removed Love Canal from the Superfund list of national priorities. With cleanup work completed and the area deemed safe, an influx of new residents purchased homes in the area since renamed Black Creek. Some of them were aware of the area's history and others not. They'd be able to purchase new or revitalized homes for much cheaper than the market value in nearby areas which appealed to many looking to get started on their American dream. Now, who says history doesn't repeat itself? Over the past two decades, a number of stories have hit papers about these residents and their newly developed issues. In 2013, CTV featured a story about Dan and Teresa Reynolds, a young couple who purchased a home on the site. They knew of the past, but their concerns were met with reassurances of safety. That's until Teresa experienced two miscarriages and numerous other health problems. Another new resident having second thoughts about his purchase is Mitchell Montgomery. Oddly enough, an article about him published by the New York Times popped up on my phone just days ago while I was on my couch writing this very episode. Mitchell and his family moved into the area only last year, but have already experienced issues. When he brushed his teeth, the article read, he sometimes noticed a peculiar smell coming through the drain. It seemed like his eight-year-old son's asthma was getting worse and his pregnant girlfriend was having occasional nosebleeds and headaches. And a couple of months ago, when he replaced the sump pump in the basement, it was covered in a thick, tar-like substance. According to Glen Springs Holdings, the Occidental Petroleum subsidiary in charge of maintaining the site, quote, Data from sampling over the past 25 years has demonstrated that the containment system is operating as designed and is protective of health, safety, and the environment. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, Occidental Petroleum paid out over $250 million in lawsuits to victims of hooker dump sites. They also stopped using the hooker name altogether. In 1995, Attorney General Janet Reno announced that Occidental would have to pay the federal government a total of $129 million, $102 million of which was to reimburse the government for cleanup costs at Love Canal. 
The remaining $27 million would be interest payments. The money would go to the EPA Superfund. Following the environmental disaster at Love Canal, Lois Gibbs continued down a path of environmental activism. In 1980, she founded the Citizens Clearinghouse for Hazardous Waste, now called the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, which provides information, resources, technical assistance, and training to community groups around the nation. She's written several books about her experiences at Love Canal and has now turned her attention to the environmental dangers of fracking. In 1982, the Love Canal story was turned into a made-for-TV movie called Lois Gibbs and the Love Canal, and starred Marsha Mason. IMDB describes it as a poorly educated housewife fights companies polluting her hometown's water table in upstate New York during the 1970s. Her husband in the movie is played by Bob Gunton. Now, he's not exactly a household name, but you'd know him if you saw him. In 1994, Gunton got the role of a lifetime, playing a warden Norton in Frank Darabont's The Shawshank Redemption. Now, if you haven't gotten around to seeing it just yet, Norton is a hard-nosed warden who believes in two things, discipline and the Bible. Salvation lies within, Norton states, holding the Bible and preaching reform to his inmates. Salvation lies within. Now, when I first watched Lois Gibbs in the Love Canal a few months back and saw Gunton playing Harry Gibbs, I immediately called to mind these words from Shawshank, which I've seen hundreds of times. I thought about how they connect to Love Canal. Salvation lies within. That was the case for those roughly 1,000 families who fought for years to find a way from their toxic homes. In the end, it was their efforts, their grassroots organizing, which prompted rescue from the government. It's important to acknowledge that the story of Love Canal is far more complicated than the abridged version that I've read to you over the past month. For further reading, I'd suggest Paradise Falls by Keith O'Brien, Love Canal, A Toxic History from the Colonial Times to the Present by Richard S. Newman, and Love Canal by Dr. Penelope Plowman. You can also uncover much of the story using my favorite source, newspapers.com. I'd also like to acknowledge that there were far more people involved in this story than just those mentioned here. Love Canal was far more than just Lois Gibbs versus Jimmy Carter. For all of their sacrifices, their activism, and their dedication to science, we thank them. Many of their stories are told in more detail in the books that I just mentioned. To ensure I'm telling the story objectively, I should note that in the years that followed, medical professionals have challenged the initial findings of the EPA, the State Department of Health, and Dr. Beverly Pagan, specifically regarding any correlations to cancer and chromosomal damage. Today's finale of our Love Canal trilogy was researched, written, and produced by me, Anthony Greco. Thank you all for listening, especially if you've managed to stay with me through all these episodes. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe, in addition to telling your friends and family. I'm going to begin work on a couple new topics and a few new exhibits, and we'll be back in several weeks. Also, I'm always open to new ideas for shows, so if you've got one, please send it along to my email, agreco at buffalohistory.org. 
I'd like to offer a special thank you to the team at WNED for providing me with the original news footage of Lois Gibbs, which helped greatly in the composition of this episode. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts, with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by M&T Bank from our donors, members, and friends.